Thousands of people are still crowding outside Kabul airport trying to flee Afghanistan. US citizens have been told to stay away because of potential security threats outside the gate. Meanwhile, Britain's former Prime Minister Tony Blair has launched a scathing attack on the US President Joe Biden's manner of withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. Mr Blair said it was tragic, dangerous and unnecessary and in obedience to an imbecilic slogan about ending the forever wars. Residents in New York State have been urged to prepare for one of the most powerful storms in years. Hurricane Henri has strengthened from a tropical storm and is expected to hit New York's Long Island and southern parts of New England later. Italy's beaches have become the focus of a series of bitter lawsuits as locals object to more and more bathing areas being closed off to all but fee-paying customers. With the sweetest of plots of sand now closed to all but paying customers, activists have secured a formal complaint against Italy from the European Union. And here in the UK, the sale of pygmy goats has come to rival that of puppies. As the cost of buying dogs has risen, the number of goats being bought as pets has increased by as much as fivefold. An animal charity has warned anyone who wishes to keep a goat as a pet must bear in mind that they are social herd animals and that you should get at least two who get on well with each other. It also warned that the animals' calls can be loud enough to disturb the neighbours and that they are likely to cause damage to fences. And those are the headlines on Monocle 24. And it's time now to join our editorial director, Tyler Brule, for this week's episode of Monocle on Sunday, live from Dufourstrasse 90 in Zurich. Good morning, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> Have you put a bulk you, order you, listen, in? Listen, you were asking for that. You know that. <laughs> good, good morning, Emma. Good morning. Have you put a bulk order in for pygmy goats? <laughs> how, many, how many should we go for? What well, do you think? Well, the possibilities are clearly endless because once you get two, then you may get more than that in quite soon. <laughs> <laughs> but um, is there any sort of photo evidence? Because, I mean, I, I imagine we're talking about a small goat. It's just it's a kid that doesn't grow up or, or does it sort of take on adult-sized proportions? Tell us more, Emma. They take on adult-sized proportions, but they're absolutely tiny. I mean, they're, they're little poppets. They really are. But 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 I suspect that if you were going to go and do a bulk order for the for the for the garden area at Midori House here in London, or possibly outside Dufourstrasse 90, you might get uh, you might get a you might get a couple of objections. But we just thought that if it was taking over, you know, the United Kingdom or indeed Switzerland, and everybody bought two pygmy goats, it would be brilliant fun. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm here, here's the next question. Have there been any requests in the Nelson house, household? Uh, they don't know about this. And so, okay, well, if and they're not going they to. <laughs> they're, not, they're not going to. <laughs> uh, Emma, tell us, uh, we're having an event at Midori House on Tuesday evening. Mm. I will be there if you'll have me. I'd be delighted to come. I've, petting, uh, yeah. petting zoo? Well, look, I mean, we've got 48 hours. There's Much can be done. We can achieve everything. Do you want me to go to the goat shop? If, if you could, before we have the news headlines from you. <laughs> no, in, pl- no problem. In 26 minutes, Monocle on Sunday starts now. Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Burley. Coming up on today's programme, we have Ben Ozog here and also our Juliet Lindley, back from Toscana, 
with a few news headlines. What have you seen? Maybe not in Toscana, elsewhere as well. Well, I couldn't not bring you the latest headlines from the Vatican, could I? So we've got the trial of the century that's underway as a cardinal faces charges over a multi-million dollar deal on a luxury flat in Chelsea. We've got Rome's recycle and travel scheme, which is winning praise in the Italians in the Eternal City's tube stations. And wait for it, we've got the ultimate Venetian stud who's got thousands of daughters spread across the globe, but he's never met their mums. Okay, listeners, that is coming up. We're also heading to Bangkok to hear from our Gwen Robinson. Sawadikar, this is Gwen Robinson in the seaside resort of Hua Hin in Thailand, and I'll be updating you on events here and elsewhere very shortly. Plus, we'll get some tailor-made holiday reading tips from the Athenaeum Bookshop in Amsterdam. It's the 22nd of August, 2021, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning from a uh, rather muggy Zurich, a promise of sunshine maybe uh, today. Anyway, um, a lot to get across over the next 55 minutes. Ben Ozogas here, as we said. Also, Juliet Lindley. Good morning, both. Good morning, Tyler. Good to talk. Good to talk. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, we, um, I wanted to uh, maybe, uh, actually, maybe I th- we should actually bring in Josh uh, Fennard as well. Also, our deputy editor is also in London uh, as well. Good morning, Josh. Good morning, Tyler. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Hi, Josh. Josh. <laughs> <laughs> We're bright and breezy for a Sunday. So good to hear from you. Josh, we'll, we'll be looking at what's happening in the British papers first. But uh, Benno, you have uh, the papers open. You've got your Jotter electronic pad there as well. I've got all of it. I just use the regular pen for my tablet. As I notice, it's clearly an early morning. Um, I've got the papers here, and it's obviously remarkable that in some German newspapers, half the actual paper is on Afghanistan, which is remarkable. Frankfurt Allgemeine, for example, but similar for other newspapers, Swiss, um, Financial Times, and so on. But apart from Afghanistan, which obviously um, we're all involved that we all all care about and uh, the images have been striking. There's other stories to talk about. One that I will not mention further is Angela Merkel's last visit to Moscow. We should really start realising that this is the end of her term and things are really changing. It's the end of an era. But apart from that, Die Zeit had an interesting story this week about making cities resilient for climate change. And not just in a, in a very technical, technical way, but in actually appealing way, as in greening facades, um, creating underground pools for flooding water to, to come in, and also instead of concrete to use sand or gravel or other materials um, to make sure that water can sink in because we've all seen these images not just of wildfires but also of floods across Europe but also other regions and I think it's really key and if you look at these images from Rotterdam, from Hamburg, um, from all kinds of cities they look really appealing. Mm. If you can turn a dike into a pleasant park and if you can turn a, a village square that can also serve as a reservoir for water, but in regular days, it's just a playground for kids and can serve as a skate park. It's actually a really nice. So climate change can be an opportunity in urban planning. Uh, Josh, I have to uh, bring you in because it sounds like Benno has really sort of set you up to to bring us a progress report on, uh, of course, the mound at the end of Oxford Street. I think mound is a rather <laughs> underwhelming word, and I think it kind of uh, does justice to, uh, to to what's been put up, as you mentioned, at the kind of western extremity of Oxford Street, this MRDV designed project, basically a, uh, a load of scaffolding with some dead grass stapled to it. 
The pro- <laughs> that is the progress report at this point. I think um, people were rather oversold on renders um, of the project. Um, but the great irony of this project, of course, Tyler, is it's right next to Hyde Park, an amazing bit of planting and public space that people use an awful lot and which has become iconic about London's provision of public space for people. So I think what we need to do is look carefully at building parks, demarking space that aren't going to be full of high rises and buildings um, and maybe not stapling grass to a bit of wood because it doesn't grow that well. No. Uh, you also spotted something in the, in the Italian papers, also on a bit of a sustainability front uh, as well. Yeah, but I just wanted to ask, Josh, are they still charging you to go up that mound of... <laughs> no, they're not. They're, they're, they're weren't not they charging. selling tickets for that originally? They were originally selling tickets and there weren't many people attending. And then they got a... <laughs> Funnily uh, enough. No, they got a tranche of terrible reviews and then they said, we'll do it for free. And then they closed it because the reviews were so bad, and now they've opened it up again uh, for free. But as Andrew Tuck wrote in a a column about it, there was some humility, actually, from the architects behind it. They said, look, we designed this, we thought it would be good, there are some problems with it. Um, So there was an interesting story there about the humility of architects, but also about the visions that our, our city planners buy, and, you know, the problem with seeing them through to fruition. But it, it does sound like there, there is an execution problem here as well. Did they did they run out of money at the finish line? What do you think happened executionally? Or not happened, as the case may be? I don't think they put enough trees on it. I don't think they... Um you know, it's it's a little bit about, you know, after the High Line became such a success in New York, everyone wanted to suddenly build a project that had an elevated green space. And the beauty of the High Line, of course, is that it was already there. The idea was to turn that unused space into something green. And the mound is an example of that kind of flawed thinking, I think. They want to build something to green rather than greening things that are already there. So I think it was um, some very slick renders, some very good presentations, and as you say, some pretty poor execution. Juliet, cue your story from Rome, I believe. We've got Rome commuters who have recycled 5 million plastic bottles at their tube stops. Isn't that cute? It's a scheme called Ricicla e Viaggia, so recycle and travel. And essentially, since 2019, they set up these, uh, maybe you've seen them in Asia, these uh, machines where you throw in your your plastic bottles. And if you get 30 pet bottles in there, you get a uh, €1.50 travel token. So, yeah, we were talking about it with Benno before, and we were thinking, but like you've got to travel with your 30 in your bag mm. every time you commute to work <laughs> or, or we were saying or maybe it's sort of like a slot machine thing where you throw you don't know if you are the 30th bottle to get in there but if you are well you get one euro 50 or, or, or even a bigger prize yeah. maybe <clears throat> well, that would be the idea hitting the, jack, hitting the jackpot exactly right? yeah. but then you might have muggings at, at two stops <laughs> simply because they want to get your winnings <laughs> uh josh do you think that would sort of fly in london or not I think maybe this goat theme that Emma mentioned in the news could be somehow involved. Perhaps they could be a prize. Maybe you get a pair after the hundredth or the. I love uh, that. Yeah. So I think I think it might fly. Also, the you know the the fear of muggings in stations in London is ever present anyway. So I don't think this would add to that. Uh, Josh, tell us what what else what are you seeing in the British papers this morning? Well, uh, I'm going to agree with Benno about the the wall to wall coverage of Afghanistan. There's a lot of soul searching in the UK papers. One thing that there is is a unanimity of the broadsheets in discussing the UK Prime Minister or former UK Prime Minister, should I say, Tony Blair's flinty article, uh, which, as Emma said in the news headlines, declares the retreat from Afghanistan and our commitments there, the US commitments there, is imbecilic, and that's been picked up by pretty much everyone. Um, It's a week since the dramatic events first unfolded 
And there's, again, unanimity that no one expected this to happen so quickly. But finally, uh, the UK papers are chewing over the fact that they need to get citizens home. We hear that Dominic Raab, the UK foreign secretary who stayed on holiday during uh, the fall of Kabul, has finally picked up the phone to... uh, ask Anthony Blinken to extend the deadline for removing people. The US has set a firm deadline at the end of August. So there are these scenes at the airport which need addressing, how to get citizens home and how to deal with refugees is a big um, issue. The UK, Canada and several other countries have agreed to take numbers in the low thousands of refugees. Um, Estonia, uh, where you've been recently on a trip, Tyler, they're going to accept, I quote, up to 10 refugees from Afghanistan, which seems like a fairly specific and an extremely low number. So there's a lot of uh, chewing over the fact that this is a global problem. And although the quick withdrawal is something that's now happened, how we deal with the fallout is something that is going to affect all of us in the future. Mm. Uh, Josh, the good news is um, Benno is, of course, our security correspondent. Benno, when you listen to, I guess, you know, at the start of all of this, everyone being on the back foot around this. Uh, did this surprise you in any way? I mean, were people out on holiday? How, how did they miss this? <laughs> um, well, in a way, yes and no. It was not surprising in the sense that there were articles 10, 15 years ago that predicted exactly what happened now. Obviously not mentioning that within a week, half the country may be overrun, um, but saying that this is not sustainable, the Taliban have never disappeared, were never defeated, because there's also no way to defeat them, not in a military sense, for sure. So that everyone was somehow aware of, but it apparently didn't trickle down to to politicians, decision makers, um, mission mandates were just extended indefinitely. But now even this year round, months and months ago, the headlines were that Taliban are overrunning district after district. We knew where this would lead to. Mm. And then in the end, there was this this weird hope that Kabul, for some weird reason, may exist in a parallel universe where this um, military conquest by the Taliban may not actually occur. And it did. And the uh, president fled, which is unsurprising as well. He said, though, he had to flee really hastily as well. He couldn't even change his shoes, he declared in an interview. But he may have been able to, to pack some dollars in cash um, when leaving. Um and once again, and this is kind of indicative for, for Western policy as well, we're confronted with having to react to developments, not being able to to in any way influence them on the ground. And even Western evacuation efforts are now at the mercy of the Taliban, which is almost ironic, if you will. Um, so here we are, and the actual debate now should probably be obviously a sober analysis of what went wrong and who's to blame if there is someone to blame but at the same time as Josh mentioned earlier um, and that's the debate in the papers as well how to help the people that are directly affected there was also an interview in today's um, Sunday papers in in Switzerland with the head of the state secretariat of migration Um, there's quite a demand here in Switzerland to pledge to take 10,000 or so refugees but he also raised logistical issues as in Absolutely. Switzerland, as other countries um, do as well, should take its responsibility. But how to identify these people that are most in need and how to get them out um, and how to not encourage, if you will, the others who may already be in safe spaces, whether that's in Pakistan or Iran and so on, is a huge issue. And this is at least a practical issue to solve, so efforts should go into that. But don't forget the actual analysis uh, in the background. And I myself, as a researcher and my colleagues, we're certainly on it. We're shaking our heads currently at current policy because it is so frustrating. Um, But we should look into it 
and also what we can learn for future interventions if they even have to happen. Uh, you know, do, do we think we move into a, a season of inquests and inquiries around this as well, at least with the intelligence community. Uh, does this happen in Washington, London, elsewhere? There is quite a bit of soul searching, obviously, um, and there are inquiries. I don't see that in any, let's say, legal way, if you will, because as we know, the uh, the people responsible for failures in intervention or for taking these interventions in the first time are rarely taken accountable. But certainly among intelligence communities, military communities, but also administrations in general, because it was never an intelligence or military issue. It was mm. much broader than that. And it was political to quite an extent. Bear in mind why the invasion of Afghanistan happened in the first place. It was a move of solidarity with the United States. That's why it was a NATO intervention, never really driven or not primarily driven by a desire to democratize Afghanistan, but to react to gruesome terrorist attacks. So it was political from the start. It was political throughout, but very often military tools were the only ones ever employed. So that should certainly go into that kind of inquiry. And I would hope that these lessons are drawn. Juliet, if you look at the Italian yeah, papers, how same. is this? You've how got so much sort of wall-to-wall -wall coverage of Afghanistan. You've got 200 evacuees having just landed at Fiumicino Airport on a military plane. Um, yeah, and, and of course, just an overall looking at, at the situation at the airport, at the situation in Afghanistan and so on. And you've got, of course, the Vatican, who's urging uh, the world to sort of take in these refugees. As we know, Pope Francis has often spoken out about, um, about in, in favor of migrants and, and encouraging the world to, to be more welcoming to Towards them. Well, if Estonia is going to take 10, how many is the Vatican taking? I think they'll go for 100. <laughs> really? <laughs> not sure about that. Maybe, maybe not. Um, not sure. But, but also but, on the refugee but, side, I mean, of course, Italy is often at the front line. Of course, when we have these mass migrations. Is this also part of the story in the Italian press today? Well, as well? well you've got both sides of the of the, uh, of the the story, really. Of course, you've got the populist um, politicians who are not exactly embracing the idea of having a huge wave of, of Afghan evacuees coming into the country. But, I mean, the general's feeling is this is a humanitarian catastrophe. Mm. We've all got to kick in and do something. Josh, if we um, look at the op-eds in, in the UK press, uh, what is what is the tone? Um, that This was, of course, you know, two decades squandered. Um, what, what are you reading? I think there's a tremendous amount of sadness, Tyler, to be honest. Um, I think you can you can look at this as a, a political decision. You can bemoan the fact that uh, the UK wasn't consulted, that uh, all of the, uh, the troops involved at the countries that govern them were not consulted. Um, but I think uh, a lot of people, uh, particularly reporters, that everyone who's ever been to Afghanistan has been wheeled out to write a column uh, with varying degrees of expertise. But there is a tremendous sense of sadness for the people. And as I look at the, the Sunday Times today, and, and just the article in front of me says that about two thirds of Afghans are under 25, so they didn't live through the previous regime. And the headline for this article uh, is, uh, we're not about to give all of this up for some Kalashnikov wielding bumpkins. So there is the, also this sense that Afghanistan is not an utterly powerless place, that there are small green shoots of hope that have been fostered by those 20 years where women have been able to receive an education, where people have been able to you know, see some of the better things about the liberal democracy, which instated some order. So there's a sense of sadness. And in terms of rebuilding uh, on the issue of refugees that you were just talking about, I think there needs to be more discussion about integration and how these things happen. We need to look at the migrant crisis and see that, you know, you can't just accept 
as Germany did, a million um, refugees without putting in place something that integrates people, that makes them feel like part of the society that they have a stake in. Because let's not forget, one of the reasons for the invasion of Afghanistan was to help establish some order from a regime that was harboring al-Qaeda, which was obviously responsible for 9-11. So in Benno's world, as I tread on his toes again from here in London, I think, you know, in order to establish some order, we need to have some serious conversations about integration of those refugees. And also, you know, people have been so, so surprised by the speed at which uh, Kabul fell, at which Afghanistan fell. But taking ground to some extent has been the easy bit. Governing is going to be the hard bit. And if I have time, I just want to add one other point of interest. It's on Afghanistan again, but um, the strange kind of spin war undertaken by um, the Taliban's uh, PR man, uh, Mohammed Sahail Shaheen, who obviously called Yelda Hakim live on the BBC to discuss policy. But there's a great um, interview with him by a journalist called Benjamin Butterworth in the I newspaper, where they ask him a series of questions about how the Taliban intends to run the country and then fact checks everything that's said um, against their spokesman, and it doesn't look so rosy. So a feeling of uh, sadness. There's a bit of a maudlin tone to some of the um, op-eds here. But I think we're turning to the idea of what can be done tangibly next. When we think about tangible, meanwhile, Benno, if we went to the compounds of the Russian and Chinese embassies, uh, what? Are, how are they viewing all of this? Uh, opportunity, opportunity, opportunity? Well, that's at least what, what papers do do report on, as in this is an opportunity for China and Russia in a way to re-emphasize their role and step in because they have maintained favorable relations with the Taliban throughout. But it's somewhat ironic, and I think it's a bit short-sighted as well. First of all, naturally, Russia's historical experience in in Afghanistan with the Soviet invasion back then uh, was not too rosy. Um, and there's tangible fears now related to that. Why is China trying to maintain favorable relations with the Taliban? Because it, ha it has an actual border with Afghanistan and is very much afraid of the influx of drugs, weapons, extremists into its Xinjiang border province, um, where, as we all know, they have their own policies in place to keep their Muslim population quiet. Um, and it's quite repressive. So there's very tangible fears and similar for Russia, in a way the Central Asian republics are its soft underbelly and almost Russia almost perceives itself as having a bit of a border with Afghanistan. And now there's military exercises with Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and so on, trying to bolster their, their, their border security. So it's very, it's very tangible. Europe geographically is far away, even though obviously migration routes exist. Um, but Russia and China are very much there at the front line. And they're pragmatic, of course. Their official line is non-interference anyway. Um, Putin, at the, at the occasion of Angela Merkel's visit, reiterated that the Afghans should decide on their own fate. And by the Afghans, he must mean the Taliban right now. Um, and democratization may be very slow, but according to Afghanistan's speed of things, which is an interesting line to take. It's consistent with what they usually emphasize. The Chinese have the very same line. We don't interfere. We don't. We deal with the government that is in power, whoever that may be. Um, in a way now, they have an advantage because there is a government in place now that nobody's really keen on to interact, but they're used to interacting with whoever. But to just consider it a win is, I think, short-sighted. Even the U.S. retreat from the region is not necessarily a win for these powers because the U.S. invested a lot. There was a bit of stabilization. Afghanistan was a problem for Afghanistan and less so for the entire region. And now this is gone. 
Now other powers have to step up, and that entails investments that they may not be willing to take, and it certainly entails instability mm. that they're not keen on for the entire region and their own borders. So it's kind of, there's two sides to it. Let's move to other sections of the paper, and we should maybe, um, should we head back south to uh, Italia, Juliet? Let's uh, head back you, to Italia. You teased a couple of other stories. Save the very, very fun bits for maybe five <laughs> minutes from now, but, uh, but maybe... Another Vatican story, which of but course can I just is also by, okay. Okay, go by just saying that it's suddenly kind of cool to be Italian again. Uh, we, only on the wait, only yeah, now. Suddenly, all of a sudden, we won the Euro twenty twenty against England and Eurovision have, and Eurovision. That was in Not May, Esatto Maneskin, and then we've got the fastest man on the planet, guys. I mean, no one expected that, right? The hundred meter sprint, Lamont, Marcel, Jacobs. Everyone was joking, like there are going to be so many kids being called Lamont in nine months' time, being born in Italy. No, so it, I mean, so having just come back from quite a long stay in Italy. I have to say, the country needed that in a way. And it's kind of nice to see that this summer of gold has given a bit of a feeling of national pride. Yeah. You know, we, Listeners we also, if you could see Juliet's shoes as well, she, went for, she, went, for, gold she, went, she went for gold laces as <laughs> gold well. Laces. But anyway. And Olympic <laughs> rings on them. <laughs> no, you know, I mean, we went through a lot. We were the first uh, to be badly hit in the pandemic in Europe. Uh, the economy was in tatters, is now trying to rebound slowly. Our tourism industry was so hard, badly hit. And, you know, uh, still to this day, I mean, I came across so many people who were like, you know, we're out of work. You've got waiters. You've got you've got so many people who worked in the hotel industry who are just hurting. And then a lot of other, um, uh, when you talk to the other side, and you talk to employers, they're saying it's really hard to find people to work. Like I was talking to a lady in a bakery or even a, a guy who runs a farm. And he says it's so hard to find people who want to work because they can get, I think, around 800 euro in subsidies if they are not in a job. So they're not willing to just take the summer jobs, which is when actually it's needed. So great to have had this summer of gold for the Italians. Okay, great. Meanwhile, Thanks for that Italian commercial break. Uh, let's... <laughs> Monocle on Sunday is brought to you by... <laughs> exactly. Hey, brought to you by Italian. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now in the Vatican, we've got this incredible trial of the century. It's like the equivalent of the O.J. Simpson trial or the Michael Jackson trial. And we've got... No, no white Broncos, though. No, no not so far. But, you know, white is the color of the, the Pope's outfits. No. So we've got Cardinal Angelo Becciu, 73 years old. He's the highest ranking cleric in the Vatican to be indicted over charges, including embezzlement, fraud and abuse of office. So back in 2014, he was the Pope's chief of staff. And he and nine other defendants are charged principally for their roles in a controversial $400 million real estate deal in Chelsea that went completely belly up. So everyone's asserting their innocence. Uh, Becciu was sacked by Pope Francis months ago. And he becomes the first cardinal ever to be indicted and tried before a Vatican criminal court. So he's also the first cardinal whose case will not will be judged by non-clergy. So before, cardinals were judged exclusively by other cardinals. Pope Francis put an end to that. So the trial has been adjourned till October. So we're all waiting with bated breath to see what happens. The charges include allegations that Becciu, who is Sardinian, channeled money to businesses run by his family in his native Sardinia. Um, you know, the case is particularly shocking because the funds that were used to finance this London deal come from an annual collection, which many Catholics around the world are going to know. And it's called Peter's Pence, as in Pence, or Penny and Pence. Oh, not Peter's and, Pence. No, <laughs> no. Pence. And it's okay. all about, you know, ordinary, regular Catholic families supporting papal charities with their donations. So that's making the headlines at the Vatican. Um, Just uh, Josh, how, you, <laughs> because we're talking about this property Chelsea, deal Chelsea. in Chelsea, um, are, are the British press uh, giving it much airtime? 
Oddly not. I haven't seen a tremendous amount of coverage of it. I guess um, I guess the, the waves that it's made in the Vatican have yet to, have yet to reach the UK papers, so obsessed as they are with uh, what's going on on the ground elsewhere. Well, that's quite understandable. But if you want to swing by 60 Sloan Avenue in Chelsea... <laughs> 49 luxury flats. Apparently they used to be part of like a Harrods warehouse. Josh, just swing by and send us a pic and tell us what you think of it. Was I'll it do that. I'll give, I'll give them that? a rap on the door. <laughs> there you go. Um, maybe just before we go to the news, one, one more. I think you've got a, there's a horsey story as well. Always a horsey theme story, no? Well, I think it's a bull. Oh, it's a bull story. Now you've given it away. No, yes. Are we going, well, it's very light. It's a kicker story. Let me just go with that. One minute, shall 15 I? seconds till the news. Go Repubblica for it. and Corriere have the story of Mura. He's a one-ton Frisian bull in Veneto, and his virility has pushed his value through the stable roof to over a million euros. So he's the superstar inseminator. He's only six, but he's a global phenomenon, apparently. And, you know, he's, he's got offerings from as far afield as Japan, China, Pakistan, the US, North Africa. His DNA qualities that cattle farmers everywhere are desperate for their cows to pass on include creating hugely prolific milk machines, resistant to illness, being more fertile, living longer, and apparently producing highest grade milk. So he's got 5,000 daughters apparently, this Mura, all over the world but he's never actually slept with any of the mums. Anyway, the name, Mura. The breeder is a huge Lamborghini fan, so you're going to love this. So of course Ferruccio Lamborghini back in the 70s when he launched his Mura car, he named it after the fighting bulls of Seville. Amazing. I know, you're so impressed. Sorry, remind us, where does Mura live? Such a stud. In Venice, near Venice. Oh, near Venice. So he's a stud. He's a Venetian stud. Gives a whole new meaning to that word. Emma. Emma. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Top that with your news headlines. <laughs> I don't. Thank you, Tyler. Thousands of people are still crowding outside Kabul airport trying to flee Afghanistan. US citizens have been told to stay away due to potential security threats outside the gates. Meanwhile, Britain's former Prime Minister Tony Blair has launched a scathing attack on the US President Joe Biden's withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan. Mr Blair said it was tragic, dangerous and unnecessary. Residents in New York State have been urged to prepare for one of the most powerful storms in years. Hurricane Henry has strengthened from a tropical storm and is expected to hit New York's Long Island later. And the owners of Switzerland's alpine huts have noticed an increasingly demanding clientele, according to the Targus Anzeiger, as more and more so-called soft alpinists are overnighting alongside hardier hikers in mountain huts. The owners have noticed requests for private bedrooms, later curfews and showers. Hut operators have responded by saying lactose intolerant menus at 3,000 metres isn't always a possibility, nor is wasting precious alpine water on washing the guests. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Emma, and any alpine huts on the horizon for you over the coming weeks as summer draws to a close? No, but I've been looking for some pygmy goats for you, Tyler. I've actually gone on. It's, they're hard to find. We've got oh, they're a, all, already difficult they're, to find. They're already sold. I mean, from Dorset to Staffordshire, it's, it's, they've all gone. They've absolutely gone. We've got a real fight on our hands if we're going to get a quality pygmy goat. There's a rather magnificent specimen. in. Uh, one, is, one is being sold due to downsizing fields, but there's, there's all the manner of, of, of bits of paperwork that we're going to have to get through. If we're going to How get these goats in, How much does a goat go for? Goat go for? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, the sky's the limit as far as I can gather. Let me, um, I am on a goat website. Are we in Mura territory right now? More than the bull's million dollar price tag. Well, I know, but we've got, we've got, we've got Elvis in, in Kings Lynn in Norfolk. <laughs> okay, he, tell us. He's 75 pounds for a service. So he's, he's What's doing, he's, well, the same thing that your bull was talking about a little bit oh, earlier. Oh, see, sorry. I mean, that's, that's actually, is transport included? I have, 
I haven't Uber. got that far. I was just wondering service if Uber. you wanted a serviceable <laughs> Yeltsin. <laughs> well, <laughs> listen, we have we have enough space in the Zurich bureau for seventy five quids. Not bad. No, and also we're we're always I sort go, of trying to sort of control Juliet, the grasses. I go so. exactly. You can start breeding them. Yeah. You don't get okay. to keep him. No, you don't um, keep there are two little ones. Uh, Billy and Bob, Bertie and Bob, are ready to go in September. They're only fifty pounds each, but there's another one at Zurich. for the service. No, for the service, or no, this buy, is for the goat. Oh, for the goat. For the goat. Oh, I mean, we, 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 this is manageable. This is absolutely manageable. But there's one that's going for a thousand pounds, and it's we're it's in, a we're sweet, in, it's a also, and we're in carry on territory as well, which is Oh, really yes, handy. It'll fit but in also, an overhead locker, no problem. If the market is a bit tight these days, I have a hunch that half a year from now, animal shelters may be full, full of, of these, these goats. goats. <laughs> we should, we should, we should head in there. But ben, I want to go back to the Alpine Hut story, the, the, the soft alpinist, which you must have a take or view on this. Ben is hardcore. You are looking at me very intensely so as if I may be one of these soft alpinists and you may be oh. right. Asking for that. vegan matcha lattes <laughs> at to- atop the, the mountains. No, you're hardcore, right, Ben? I can just see you. Hardcore-ish. I haven't been hiking too, too much. But obviously, if you go to one of these mountain huts... But have you ever done one of these hardcore mountain hut experiences? Sure. Bring your own... Yeah, yeah. Bring your own everything. Forget there's there's, there's, there's bunk beds, if anything, 10 people sleeping next to each other. Yeah. Obviously, the pandemic has changed that a little bit. But I mean, the whole idea of it is it is rough. It is on a mountain summit. Yeah. You're not, not supposed to expect any kind of luxury. And who cares about shower if everybody stinks? Um, that's part of the experience. Fantastic. Speaking of stinking, it. you were measuring <laughs> this awful him. snake that's invaded the Lake of Zurich that smells terribly. Really? Benno, yeah. I was, I was in Lake this morning and there was... That's the smell we could smell in the studio, It smells Tyler, wonderful honestly. in here. Okay, no, there's weirdly a story in today's Sonntagszeitung that there's an invasive species in Swiss lakes... Um, of a snake that actually swims in there and if it's attacked <laughs> it covers itself in its own feces to repel any kind of attacker yeah. but I mean there's 20 or 30 sightings a day across Switzerland of such snakes um, but apparently Tyler Brule who's often swimming in the lake hasn't okay, spotted one spotted not, so it not, can't not be that lake. can't be that serious it might be, must be these soft swimmers as opposed to the, exactly. to the hardcore, hardcore ones that is the government complain. in Bern across this or any sort of I'm pretty sure it's the major issue keeping people busy in Bern these days we yeah. really lack other problems yeah, yeah. yeah. calling it airstrikes against them uh, it's just uh, gone 10.34 here in Zurich we're going uh, for a short commercial break off to Amsterdam after this Marriott Bonvoy is proud to partner Monocle on Sunday on Monocle 24 as a global leader in hotels covering the globe from cool urban vibes to the most luxurious retreats whatever your travel style Marriott has the perfect place for you. One such location is the Ritz-Carlton Kyoto, which sits serenely on the banks of the Kamagawa River with sweeping views of the mountains. Located in the heart of a city famed for its beautiful temples, palaces and gardens, the Riverside Resort brings the unsurpassed elegance and renowned service of the Ritz-Carlton to Kyoto while honouring the extraordinary cultural heritage of the city through design. Simon Finch is the Ritz-Carlton Kyoto's loyalty manager, and he's here to share some of his favourite spots to visit in Kyoto. Here's Simon, and first up is the Diamonji. Diamonji is a mountain very close to the Ritz-Carlton. You can see it from the actual windows. They also have a festival every year on the 16th of August, where the whole mountains are lit up with bonfires. To get to Diamonji, it's only a 15-minute cycle, and then... 
one hour hike up the actual mountain. And when you do get to where they have the bonfires for this festival, you will see picturesque views of Kyoto. An absolutely brilliant, wonderful place. Simon Finch, the Ritz-Carlton Kyoto's loyalty manager, sharing his favourite places to visit in Kyoto. Discover more compelling and enriching experiences across 30 distinct brands with Marriott Bonvoy at marriott.com. Marriott Bonvoy, proud partner of Monocle on Sunday on Monocle 24. back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule, heading to Amsterdam now to speak to one of our favourite bookkeepers on the continent. Uh, I should say a bookseller, in fact. René van der Kamp uh, is joining us from Athenaeum in Amsterdam. Good morning. Good morning, Tyler. Hello. How are you in Zurich? We're very well in Zurich and I hope everyone is uh, well in uh, Amsterdam as well. Maybe just uh, tell us about uh, the summer of book trading and, and magazine selling uh, in, uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, how, how have the past few months been, René? Well, they have been, in, yeah, it has been good. Sales have improved. Um, people are finding their way back to the city. I mean, the Amsterdammers, they have been avoiding the city center because it was so busy. And after the lockdown, they seem to have come back. Tourism, tourism also has restarted. So city is actually ex- sort of exploding. And when you walk around or cycle around, it's really busy. But also, like, yeah, people are finding their way to our store. The square looks nice. There's a big terrace from the cafes around. And yeah, the atmosphere is good and positive. So that's really nice. It, it sounds almost then uh, like we're in territory that that monocle book signing should be happening soon if the square is alive oh, and bubbling yes, again. Sir, yes, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it will be nice. We have some small events uh, planned in the months ahead because uh, we were celebrating our 55th birthday. So, um, yeah, so things are being made possible, you know, with the restrictions and everything being loose. And so we might be able to pick a date together. So, Renny, speaking of dates, some people are still heading off on, on holidays. Uh, of course, we want to chat to you this morning about your your suggestion for reads. We'll go to magazines in a moment, but maybe if we um, if we start in the world of, of fiction, possibly, uh, what's, what's walking off the shelves uh, at the moment at Athenaeum? Um, well, a couple of titles. Um, my favorite one is The Other Black Girl by Zakia Dalila Harris. It's a really interesting novel uh, which uh, plays in the, in the publishing industry, so um, b- publishing and books. So and, and it's a really good sort of almost a whodunit, but also very well written. And to be honest, it also makes you feel a bit uncomfortable sometimes because um, it's about one girl. A black girl is the only one in the publishing house, and then there's another, the other black girl, and then the whole story develops. It's really interesting, and it sells really well. Um, and then also, funnily enough, The Secret History by Donna Tart, which is, a you know, over 20 years ago it was published, and suddenly there's an, an enormous increase in a young audience buying the novel. And we ask them, like, why do you, can I ask you why you buy this novel? And they say, like, yeah, I've been recommended it, and I'm very curious. So it's really interesting that, Suddenly, this novel is is being picked up again. And, and um, any sense that there was a push from from the publisher or uh, Donna Tartt's yeah. uh, own own personal uh, publicist uh, that has sparked this? As you said, I mean, the book is it's in that sort of funny ter- territory. It's not sort of a really well could be a modern classic in a way, um, but it's it's amazing that it's got this level of of rediscovery. And is it is it only confined to Amsterdam? <laughs> 
I'm not sure about that. I have to ask some colleagues around the, around the country, maybe. But um, yeah, I mean, we are a funny bookstore anyway, um, sales-wise. But the nice thing is that we see an increase in young readers, which is really nice. The young adult books, they, you know, the novels in that sort of age range, they sell really well. And you've got this TikTok thing where young people are sort of, you know, recommending books to each other by small TikTok films. And that seems to really have taken off. So that's really nice. I mean, we need young readers because they are also the readers of the future. So, and just uh, yeah, in, a, in, a, in the nonfiction um, space uh, as well, anything else uh, that uh, you would be recommending for people to um, put into their uh, overnight bag and their tote as they head off on KLM or Transave <laughs> or wherever they're going to or whoever they're going to be flying with on, on these yeah. last few weeks of summer? <laughs> um, well, there's this beautiful book by Edmund de Waal, Letters to Camondo. Um, there's another, I mean, this, this man is a genius, isn't he? I mean, he's a, he's a great artist and he's also a great writer. And this book is, is his own letters to, to, to a sort of a family, a French family, a Jewish family. And they, the heritage of them is a, you know, the, the largest private art collection in, in the world. Uh, and it's a house in, in Paris. And he, so he's very curious about their history and about their life and about their art. So he writes his own letters to them. And made that into this book, and it's it's brilliantly written, and it's it's you know it sells really well as well. People are really picking it up. There's also a Dutch translation, but the, the, you know the English edition sells really well. Just before we go to magazines, uh, you, you mentioned obviously young uh, young adult readers, uh, and you do have one uh, one key recommendation uh, here as well, which is which is doing um, incredibly well by um, Adam Silvera. Yeah. Um, that's the, they both die at the end. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. I haven't read it, to be honest. I can't read everything. But, um, yeah, that's a really interesting, uh, uh, increase in, 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 in the title. Absolutely. So uh, yeah. we look at um, my favorite part uh, of your uh, establishment, uh, which, of course, uh, are the, the magazine uh, shelves and the places where the titles uh, mm -hmm. are, of course, always handsomely stacked. Um, what's, what's doing well um, in the world of periodicals, Renee? Um, a lot, actually. Um, it's funny because distribution has restarted and resumed. And so we, we are well stocked at the moment with, with titles, also new titles. For instance, Naives, it's a, it's a fashion magazine, beautifully made, beautifully designed. It's made in Lille. And it's, um, it's actually, um, with a black focus. Um, and it's, it's beautiful. And that's, yeah, we're very happy to have that. And then um, Cabana, which is, I don't know if you know Cabana, but it's its a hilarious yes, interior. Al always, always does well, yes. Absolutely abundant. And, and that's, yeah, with, you know, fabric covers and, yeah, everyone's always sort of very keen when the new issue comes out. And at the moment, we have this beautiful book by Acne, Acne Paper. That was a, once, it was an, an amazing magazine. And they now made like a tribute. So there's a really thick book beautiful and you know it has the best of, of the of the years uh, that has been i mean it's really nicely done it's i mean and then when you when you leave through it it's we have it on a on a on a on a pedestal and people can really leave through it because it's amazing you know interesting stories about iris Apfel, about cultural issues about beautiful photography um historical as well as current it's it's an amazing publication so we're very happy to stock that it's a real Ren celebration of this beautiful magazine. Ren, is this the direction that publishing, you, you see titles going as well, that if you're going to do a magazine, 
really make it a celebration of, of print. I mean, you talk about the covers of Cabana. Um, and, you know, you've also got obviously Luncheon doing very well. Again, a title of mm-hmm. scale. Is this is this the direction that magazines have to move in in a way? I think so. Yeah, you you have to stand out in a way, um, and you have to be very. I think you have to do what you what you like very much and what you're very good in. You, I mean, you shouldn't be sort of general. I think what you see, like the Dutch Vogue is going, um, the Dutch Glamour is going. They, you know, publisher have to have you know pull the plug out. Um, but on the other hand, you see magazines, you know, um, being being born. And I think if you wanna if you wanna make a good magazine, you have to really stand out and 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 do your utmost best in the way it looks and the way it's you know edited and the story should be very good and the photography should be good and the design is very good because people want to buy magazines because magazines are obviously quite expensive but people want to buy something that's really adding to their I don't know to their experience. I think Brenda that's Vanderkamp, very important. Half a name. Well, first, um, happy birthday as you approach your your, your 55th uh, for, for the store. And we look forward Thank to you. hopefully holding um, an event with you very, very soon. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. We're going away for a very short break. Back after this. The question of what constitutes the best quality of life is in sharper focus in 2021 than perhaps ever before. So why not join Monocle's editors in Athens next month to learn how to restart and reshape our lives, companies and hometowns. All that and the perfect chance to explore a city on the rise. The three-day event brings together more than 25 speakers and a team of delegates for an in-depth look at the best projects, people and practices helping to create and nurture dynamic cities around the globe. Hear from author and columnist Thomas Chatterton-Williams, Top designer Nada Debs, the mayor of Athens, Kostas Bakoyanis, Emma Tucker, editor of the Sunday Times, leading neurosurgeon Philippe Schucht, and many more. Be in the room where it happens. Tickets are selling fast. To pick up yours and to find out more, visit monocle.com forward slash events now. The Monocle Quality of Life Conference, from the 23rd to the 25th of September. See you in Athens. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. We are heading to Bangkok now. Our correspondent there, Gwen Robinson, is standing by. In fact, she's, I don't believe actually, she's not in Bangkok. She's our Bangkok correspondent. She's in Hua Hin. Uh, Gwen, uh, good afternoon. Sorry, Carl Tyler, indeed. I escaped Bangkok. Uh, just uh, let's um, maybe look uh, a little bit north from where you are. Of course, people who are not familiar with Hua Hin, uh, of course, over on the, the western side of the Gulf of, uh, of, of Thailand. Um, just uh, tell us first why you're there, but maybe also what is happening in Bangkok at the moment? Because, uh, you know, it, it really sort of sounds like the wheels are spinning off in a way. Well, it's, a, it's incredibly mixed and it's a, it's a very bizarre feeling increasingly here. Uh, as you say, I, I escaped the, the deep and miserable lockdown in Bangkok for uh, a breezier, more open atmosphere in uh, just two and a half hours south uh, by driving uh, in Hua Hin in a lovely beachside resort called Anantasila, looking out at the sea. It's also locked down here. But Bangkok, meanwhile, is plunging into a, a form of uh, regular turmoil with protests rising uh, amidst uh, quite a lot of anger, really, that has built up 
and I think really focused at, at the government with accusations of uh, mishandling of COVID management, but also this deep frustration that has set in over the years, uh, several years, really since the, the military takeover uh, of uh, Prayut Chanosha, now the, the Prime Minister. And I think all that is welling up at the same time as COVID is continuing to explode in this country. Um, turned a bit of a corner the last few days, but we're still seeing about 19,000 new cases a day and uh, deaths continuing to rise between two to 300 deaths a day, which has really alarmed Thais, who are used to being a model country for COVID management last year. And of course, this has affected a lot of confidence in tourism and uh, other things. And, and one has to assume then, with the government having to get a course across the, the, the daily numbers and infections, there's probably not a lot of discussion about even what happens with tourism, or, or is that a parallel conversation as well? Well, yeah, that's, um, you, you put it really well. It all comes together in this bizarre disconnect, as I said, because at the moment we've got this Phuket sandbox scheme, which um, many listeners may have heard about. And it, basically, it is it is functioning extremely well, and the idea is ingenious. You know, they, you seal off a lovely tropical island uh, full of hotels and restaurants, and and you let fully vaccinated tourists fly in. You take every precaution. You you test them a lot, and uh, they do their two weeks on that island, roaming freely, and then they're free to move around the country. Um, and that theoretically should have worked brilliantly, and it was. And then. A few weeks ago, as, as some may have heard, uh, there was a, a brutal murder of a, a Swiss uh, woman diplomat uh, who was uh, holidaying on her own. And uh, this also seems to have, have shaken a lot of international confidence. It's unfortunate. Normally, Phuket is, uh, is fairly safe. You, you rarely hear about crimes like this. So I think that's added to the woes. Um, overall, though, it it has been and still continues to go reasonably well, the whole sandbox idea. And the government is going ahead and extending that to include uh, a few other island destinations with the idea of actually expanding it to about seven destinations, including Krabi, the very popular uh, seaside area down south. Um, so you've got that ticking along and that's one little positive bit, but <laughs> get a load of this. They've had... So far, a little over 20,000 tourist arrivals under the sandbox scheme in about six weeks. That compares to this country was getting 40 million tourists a year. Well, you can work that out per month. So it's, a, it's just a drop in the ocean, but it's a, it's a desperate time uh, right now. Gwen, I just want to go back to the, the death of the Swiss diplomat because also we were discussing also the, the death mm. recently also of a, of a, of a Ukrainian uh, diplomat uh, as, as well, also in, oh, uh, in Thailand, I believe. And you talked about that. It, it often seems that um, you're bringing us stories of people from the world of, of diplomacy uh, who meet unfortunate ends in, in Thailand. Um, you've been posted no. around the world. Do you think that there's um, maybe more of a, do we call it an uptick? Uh, but it, it does seem, just strike me that... Um, yeah, that, that there seems to be more odd things happening to diplomats in, in Thailand than other corners of the world. But I could, I could be wrong. There are lots of diplomats, as we know, in, in stationed all over uh, the world. Yeah, Tyler, you have a superb journalistic instinct. And, uh, and it, it does, I agree, it, it can look rather odd. And uh, it's, it's either careless at the beginning, but maybe it's beginning to look uh, more, uh, more fishy. But uh, I do think these things are entirely unrelated uh, uh, this was such a, a different case, but uh, 
the uh, Ukrainian ambassador died of a, a heart attack, which apparently, through thorough investigation, seems there were no suspicious circumstances. The Swiss diplomat, a very senior woman, but again, uh, the uh, culprit was found extremely quickly confessed. It does seem in this country, uh, not all confessions are probably are mm. voluntary, but uh, this one does seem the case. It was a, it was a fairly cut and dried case of um, both robbery and uh, attempted or actual sexual assault. And uh, it was just very unfortunate and, uh, and I think extremely rare, but it does seem to have triggered some very negative publicity for Thailand, particularly in Switzerland and Europe, I think, where tourists are being warned uh, to be very careful. And, of course, the COVID explosion doesn't help either, and Thailand has just passed the, the one million mark. That's one million COVID cases out of a, a population of about 67 million. That's really very high. Uh, so I think that the Thais have a, a lot of... Um, a lot of issues ahead and uh, of course these protests don't help so i'm sorry to sound so negative there are some bright spots <laughs> well let's well i don't want to say in a negative space but uh, but certainly when you look to the streets of, of bangkok and, and other cities of course we've seen significant protests as, as we have mm-hmm. elsewhere in the apac region we only have to go to your one sort of semi-native uh sydney and elsewhere yeah. to also see um you know really oh almost God, uprisings yeah. you know thousands of people but <laughs> if we go to, if we go to bangkok right now um, you know, is there a lid on it? Um, is there a dialogue happening or are these happening very spontaneously? And I guess if we sort of point to a sort of a level of leadership uh, behind this uh, instigation, mm. Gwen, where is that coming from? Well, that if you had an hour, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd go into Don't this, we don't. But, We've uh, got about four minutes yeah, to the end of the okay. show. No, <laughs> thank you for the reminder. Um, there, <laughs> there indeed is some form of leadership. Obviously, this is not just springing up organic, you know, on its own. There are obviously forces, but they are uh, political linked to political forces, I think, who have a a very cogent strategy. Uh, A lot of it is coming together in uh, various forms of criticism of the government. As I mentioned, COVID management, but also there is this deep-seated frustration about Thailand's, you know, economic drift and uh, also the frustration and rage of a lot of young people. You can see who are seeing their, you know, careers or their education going down the drain. So I think, you know, there is a, a, a mixture of, of a need to vent that rage and as well a really, you know, increasingly hardcore opposition. And these demonstrations are actually getting very nasty. Last year we saw 30,000 or 40,000 people turning up uh, last August to, to demonstrations. Now it's only, it's little more than 1,000 on most days, but these are very hardcore and have provoked, you know, police are using rubber bullets, tear gas. A young man lost his eye the other day with a tear gas canister thrown at him. So, um, you know, they are getting nasty and the images are, are really not good. And I think basically it's just piled up on the government with so many issues to handle now. Uh, obviously, it's reached a tipping point where they're not handling any particular thing that well even though vaccines are finally rolling out and uh, we are seeing much more now, but it took a long time and it did provoke rage in the process. Gwen Robinson, our correspondent uh, in Bangkok, actually in Hua Hin at the moment, we're going to have to, to leave it there. Just ben, just quickly before we go on, on the sort of topic of, of, let's say, protests and uprisings and again going to Australia at the moment, for example, do we move into a new phase? Do you think um, this is, of course, your 
security hat on, which is always on. Um, governments um, maybe, I mean, face a new set of challenges. People have, of course, a different level of information. Of course, we see this division, of course, between the vaccinated, the unvaccinated, uh, and people are, of course, wanting to see action either to force more people to be vaccinated, um, you know, and, and really feeling in a position like, you know, they're, they're locked down. Why? Um, as we move into this next phase, complicated for, for governments at a federal, regional level as well. Um, in a way, like the nature of protests or protests as a political phenomenon has always been on. It was unnatural that about a year ago or so it completely stopped altogether because people were locked up at home, if you will. Um, so now we're back to the natural state. And this has been happened this decade all over the place in all kinds of regions that very strong political protests against regimes, but also against specific policies. And as this pandemic and its political reaction and the measures that are taken and the economic ramifications are so disruptive that one would actually wonder were there no protests against measures, against hardships and so on. In a way, this is normal, as weird as, as it sounds, but it may indeed intensify now that some countries experience the next phase, whereas some others have this issue between vaccinated and non-vaccinated. Um, at the same time, I don't perceive them in most places as actual mass protests. Very often it is fringe groups with either specific economic interests or very specific theories about the pandemic, if you mm, will. Mm. Or maybe just uh, those whose patience is wearing thin. Oh, yeah. uh, Josh, yeah. Josh Fenwick back in London. A uh, little bit of a look ahead uh, for our listeners uh, from the world of Monocle. Uh, what, what's coming up over the, the coming week? What's going out the door? What's going on air? Um, an awful lot, Tyler. You'll actually be one of the things uh, coming into the door to review the pages of our refreshed October issue. I won't give away too much about the stories we've planned. No, don't. But I think I haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen it yet. It hasn't been approved yet. I gather you'll be arriving with your editor's red pen uh, to vet what we have proposed, uh, which is very exciting. Um, the new issue of Confect magazine, that's issue four of our sister publication, has just arrived and goes on sale, I believe, next Thursday, which is extremely exciting. You can read about the uh, fiery revival of wine from Etna, some amazing uh, garden recipes from Provence, and lots of uh, very thought-provoking um, stories and ideas there as well. Um, do we, have to, do we have time for another one? They'll also no, be in. I was just going to say thank you because we okay. have to say goodbye to Juliet as well. Josh, I'll see you tomorrow. Um, Bye, Tyler. The school, school, the school run starts. Uh, Last week. Already? Yes. Can you imagine leaving Italy full Ferragosto mode mm. and everyone's like heading off on the, to their beaches and we're heading up to sunny Zurich? Not. No, not, not today. <laughs> we're going to have to leave it there. Better talk, Juliet Lindley. Josh Fennard, Emma Nelson, thanks very much for joining us. Also to Renny Vanderkamp in Amsterdam and of course our Glenn Robinson in Hua Hin. Our producers today, Desiree Bandley, Desi Bundles, as we call her as well. Also Nora Hall, Emma Nelson and Marcus Hippie. I'm Tyler Berlay in Zurich. Have a very, very nice Sunday. We'll speak later in the week. Goodbye.